Welcome to Things to Know. I'm Luca, and on this show, we talk to the people that make the Thingnoms special. Today, we're talking to none other than Thingnoms Mod and longtime community member, Otrick. Otrick is a creative storyteller and has an incredibly interesting story themselves. I hope you enjoy this interview, but more importantly, I hope you learn something. Thank you so much for coming on today. Why don't you start by just telling us a little bit about yourself? Who are you? Yeah, sure. Uh, I'm Patrick Luce, better known as Otrick. Um, I've been a reality TV editor and producer for the last 15, okay, going on 16 years. Uh, but I uh, left all that behind. I'm currently a, I work the cash register at a comic book slash board game slash collectible card game shop. Cool. So reality TV and then now into collectibles and board games and comics. Yeah. I, uh, I know the, the second world a lot better than I know the first, <laughs> if I'm going to be honest. Yeah. But talk to me a little bit about reality TV. How'd you end up in that? What drew you to it? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And then I guess ultimately, why'd you decide to leave? Sure. Um, well, you know, I knew uh, leaving high school that I w- wanted to make movies. So um, my dad convinced me to get a business degree, go to a regular school first. So I had something to fall back on that lasted a semester. By the end of that, I realized like the only class that I care about is my international film studies class. So I bounced from U of O and I took a year and a half off and I just worked a bunch and saved up a bunch of money. And then I went to school in Florida, a film school called Full Sail, which is an accelerated two year bachelor degree where they simulate the hours of the industry by having you work around the clock, taking labs, like four hour labs at 1 a.m. Um, I, I, uh, you know, when I was there, I was, I was sure I was going to be a writer director. That was the goal. Um, and still is the goal, still is the passion. Um, and I was doing a lot of cinematography, doing a lot of directing. The thing that I wasn't doing was paying attention in post-production classes or television classes because I had no interest in those things. And then I moved out to Los Angeles and immediately got a job doing post-production in reality television. <laughs> and because, you know, after a few weeks, it's like, I need a gig and this will pay me. Um, mm. And I just kind of got, I just kind of got stuck there. You know, they kept throwing work at me, more and more responsibility, more and more pay. I started meeting more and more people. And at the beginning, I was, I was just an assistant editor, so... I had tons of creative energy at the end of the day um, and and more hours, you know, it was like a 40 to 50 hour work week, not too bad. And so I could come home and I could work on my own screenplays. And that's what I did for the first couple years of my career. Um, But I made the jump from, you know, I went from assistant editor to editor and then an opening came up for a story producer position, which really appealed to me. So I made the jump over to the producing track. And once I did that, my workload started increasing rapidly and my ability to maintain my output at home decreased. I just didn't have the bandwidth for it. And before I knew it, reality TV producing kind of took over for me. And about five years in, I got a call about a job opening in Missoula, Montana. Would you be interested in coming out for six months to do this show out there? I said, yeah was ready to get out of Los Angeles, Montana. was a little bit more my speed. I grew up in Oregon. And um, that job 
quickly led to another season and a renewal. And I went from story producer to supervising producer to executive producer. And then all of a sudden it became my sort of all encompassing career. And so I was in that sort of creative lead position as either executive producer or supervising producer for about six years after that. And that brings us up to present day where, um, I, you know, I just don't want to do it anymore. It takes up all of my time, all of my energy, and it's not what I went to film school for. It's not how I want to spend my life, you know? I want to be writing and directing movies or, or, or even not even movies. I just want to be making my own stuff, you know, because I want to make it. So um, I decided to get a low-key job that doesn't, that isn't taxing, that doesn't tap into my creative energies, and uh, I found this amazing job at this great comic book shop. And like, I've never enjoyed a job more. It's just the best place to work. It's so much fun. And coincidentally, I'm working on a screenplay that revolves around this world. So it's, it uh, provides the benefit of also being research. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. That, that's a very, very cool story. It sounds like um, you intelligently you know we're, we're working your way into this industry that you were interested in managed to do that successfully did it so successfully that you accelerated through that industry and then kind of at some point took a step back and went okay i'm, I'm in the industry but is this really what i want to be doing specifically and and that's really fascinating story i don't know if a ton of people you know who are successful who do move through it ever really take that that chance to step back and be like okay I've done a bunch of stuff. Is it really what I want to be doing now? Um, that's incredibly interesting. Talk to me a little bit more about movies and, and storytelling in general. What appealed to you about that? What drew you towards it? What made you want to dedicate your life to it and, and kind of work towards it? Oh, man. Well, I mean, movies have always sort of been the thing for me. Um, it's kind of in my blood. Um, my mom came from a family of six kids uh, in Madera, California, and uh Grandpa and grandma ran the Madeira cinema. It was a single screen cinema and the whole family worked it. Um, and so that whole family loves movies and I kind of grew up with that story. And then my dad, um, he was a DJ when I was born in the Bay Area. He was Sonny, Sonny Joe Fox with K-M-E-L. Um, and he was this sort of like big deal local celebrity. I, like I had these weird memories of my dad hosting a Saturday morning cartoon show when I was a kid. Uh, but when I was like three, he gave that up to start his business, which is a mail order movie business. It's called Sinister Cinema. And he sells old horror, sci-fi, Western espionage movies from the 1930s, 40s, 50s, 60s, public domain stuff, stuff that he can get the rights to. And um, he runs it from home. So as long as I can remember, there's been... You know, at first, when we lived in California, it was a it was a room, and then we moved to Oregon. There was a whole building attached to our house that was filled with uh, floor to ceiling, wall to wall racks of glowing televisions next to, at first VHS players, then DVD players, then Blu-ray players. All of these TVs constantly playing movies and recording duplicates and printing out CDs or DVDs or, or whatever. Um, and so that was always in my life. I was always surrounded by these movies. And then dad just always loved it. Like, that's how dad and I bonded was we'd go up into the attic in the shop where he had a little TV and we'd watch universal monster movies like The Wolfman and The Mummy and Dracula. 
and then when I was uh, like nine, we bought a drive-in theater out in a tiny town called Cave Junction, Oregon. And between the between that age and like until the time I was twelve, we had a drive-in. I spent every summer out there. Uh, so I mean, between like when my parents first started dating, my dad worked at the theater. And that was how we bonded with their family. And so, you know, between that and dad's business and the fact that I grew up on a drive-in and that we were a very, like, sort of house cat, we watch movies sort of family, uh, movies have sort of shaped the way that I look at the world and feel about things. They've shaped my worldview very much. Yeah, no, that, that makes a ton of sense. It's hard to imagine growing up in that environment and not, being influenced by movies yeah, right? and, and ending up in it in some way. Yeah. I mean, maybe you could end up super radicalized against them, right? Yeah, if you're rebellious, if you're going to rebel, sure. Yeah, it uh, it makes a fair amount of sense. Um, so you said you now are in a game store, comic book store, um, enjoying that job yeah, a lot. Yeah, it's the best. What are some of the surprising aspects of that? What would people not expect with that. Oh man. Well, I, I've been very surprised by the job. I, I had expectations that it would be, you know, it'd be fun to work in this place that has all this, like, I, I love fantasy. I love all that stuff. I love Magic the Gathering. And I thought it'd be cool to just be surrounded by all that stuff daily and have fun, nerdy conversations. And we do. Like yesterday we were talking about like if the Fantastic Four snapped and decided to attack the world, which four X-Men would you uh, send against them and you can't pick professor x or gene gray or anyway and we had this like hour-long conversation that's a fun thing and that's what i expected what i didn't expect was that the shop is a sanctuary for so many of our customers it's it's the best part of their day we have so many customers who come in every day and a lot of them have they have like tragic backstories, they're coming from hard places, and it's their escape. It's a place where they can go and be with other people who just love them and just play games, and and it's very escapist. And not only is it an escape from difficult things, but there are also all these kids, we sell Pokemon cards. My favorite part of my job is uh, I've taken over the little Pokemon Pokemon singles card case. Whenever somebody wants to come in and look through those, I'm all over that because these kids come in and their parents come in with them. And this kid locks in on these cards and is just looking through them and the parent's looking at me and I'm talking to the parent and the parent's like, yeah, he is autistic. And until he found Pokemon cards, he was basically nonverbal. And this has opened him up to the world. And I just, I just love that. Like it makes my heart swell that these kids come in and they've got this thing that is a catalyst for interaction and love, <laughs> you know, not to get too sappy about it, but they, you know, it's, it's an opening. Um, and I also just love being like a human claw machine and, <laughs> and picking these cards out for these kids. These kids are like six years old and they know everything about these Pokemon. And um, I'm learning as fast as I can. I can't keep up with them, but they put up with me. Yeah, that that sounds like such a, a fun and fulfilling thing that most people wouldn't really like immediately associate with the job. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think what you were saying um, in the beginning is is even more powerful, or not even more powerful, but equally as powerful as, as the kid dynamic. 
it is a space for a lot of people who who don't have a lot of other mm -hmm. areas to go where they won't be accepted mm -hmm. in a lot of other areas. Mm -hmm. I've uh, I've spent like a fair amount of time in game stores across my life and it's um an infinitely fascinating group of characters yeah. and people. Yeah. That kind of show up to them. Um yeah, very very cool. Very very cool stories. So for you is it the games you said you love Magic the Gathering. Mm -hmm. um, is it the comic books? I assume with the movies and and storytelling that that's a part of it. And then you also said that it's working as inspiration for one of the films you're working on now. Kind of tell me how that culture comes together for you and and how is it influencing your work? Um, well, it it just sort of influences this particular story. It's it's a heist movie centered around. Uh, high-profile, valuable Magic the Gathering cards. Um, and uh, I just kind of wanted, it, like, the first act takes place in a shop like this. And I just knew that I, if I was going to write this story, I needed to understand the people that go to these shops. Um, it's also very much a found family story, but it wasn't at first, but it's become that because of the influence of the shop. Um, and I also needed to be able to speak Magic uh fluently and uh like i know that i'm getting there now because after six or seven weeks in the shop i'm starting to make jokes make magic the gathering jokes like to my family who know nothing about it so that's how i know that it's starting to take <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah that's uh that's very cool and that sounds like a, a really interesting premise for a movie as soon as you said it you're like oh that that works that, that could be pretty compelling so i'm uh i'm very excited to see where that all goes Let's switch it up a little bit and talk about Web3 and, and crypto. How'd you find it? Let's just start there. Did it did it come through NFTs or was it tokens? Like, what did that look it like? Was, it was Dogecoin. It was early 2020. And um, I've been in a group chat with a few of my buddies who we like, we've been friends since elementary school and we keep our daily group chat going. And one of them started talking about this Dogecoin and he bought this Dogecoin and hey guys, you should get in on this Dogecoin. And a week later, he's like, my Dogecoin is up X percent. And I'm like, okay, you know what? All right. So I set aside 2000 bucks to buy some Dogecoin. And uh, he's like, get a Voyager account. This is the only thing you should do. Don't do anything else. I signed up for Voyager and Voyager, it took them like literally six weeks to process my application because of there was such a flood of people trying to do it. And by the time that I finally got access, I felt like I had clearly missed the run up and my buddy had made a ton of money. And I was like, well, I missed that one. Uh, where else can I get in on this? Cause now I want in. So I got the bug. I started researching and, um, I like, I think like a lot of people was attracted to, Cardano at first because ADA cost a buck and to my foolish, not uh, financially savvy mind, I was like, oh, it's a dollar. I'll buy something that costs a buck that I'm going to make a lot of money. I didn't understand market cap at the time. Um, I now understand so much more about finances than I ever did. I had no interest in finances. I don't care about finances or money or government or infrastructure or any of that stuff. I'm a total escapist, like fantasy comic book sort of nerd. Um, and I just, but now I understand it because, because of crypto, because crypto makes it fun. Uh, and especially NFTs. Um, so I spent the better part of a year just investing in and learning everything that I could about crypto. Um, and then 
about a year into it, you know, I'd heard about NFTs, but I thought, nah, it's not for me. Seems weird. Twitter says it's stupid. I better not get into NFTs. But then somebody in my feed was like, if you're into crypto, you should just mint an NFT. Don't expect to make any money. Just do it for the experience so that you know what this is and see what happens. And uh, so I did. I minted something called DGen Crypto Club, which is a little NFT project on Cardano. And as soon as my little profile picture showed up in my wallet, I was hooked instantly. I was like, this is mine. I like this guy. I identify with him. And there's a community of knuckleheads that like to crack jokes all the time. And I can be one of them. And I can be represented by this by this character. This is great. So I joined the Discord. And then, you know, one thing leads to another. All these people are talking about the next thing. And, and there's, you know, at this time, it was still very much bull market. And it was very exciting. Everything was running up left and right. And I just went absolutely insane joining communities and trying to get on whitelists. I do not miss whitelist grinds, but at the time I was all about it. Um, it also coincided with me at a time personally where it was just like exactly what I needed. I was in a, I was in a long-term relationship and that ended. And within two weeks, my dog also died. And so I found myself living alone on the Oregon coast uh, at the start of winter uh, in a very small, isolated, remote town, uh, facing a long stretch of uh, isolation, <laughs> a long stretch of solitude and grieving. And NFTs and the Discord servers provided me with a place to go and just like crack wise and talk to people and have fun. And it was it was a great escape for me. And that sort of fueled my, uh, I guess my obsession, my development in NFTs at the time. I spent probably more time on Twitter and on Discord than would be considered healthy, but it was, you know, what I needed to do at the time. Yeah, that that makes sense. And um, I, I can empathize with that idea of NFTs and, and using the communities there as a way to kind of um, cope with or, or get through difficult times. Um, I think that's a very common and shared experience in the space. And I think similar to a, a lot of the stuff we were talking about in, you know, the comic book stores and the game stores, there's a certain element to that, that dynamic that also exists within the NFT communities that I think is, is really fascinating. Um, give me some of your biggest takeaways from those early days in NFTs. What you were saying, like, it, it's cool that there's this community and I'm able to be represented by this character. Was that what drew you to it? Was it the ownership aspect? Like what specifically was like, wow, this is so cool. Yeah, well, so, you know, I said earlier, I'm not a finance guy, I'm not a numbers guy. Um, NFTs, as soon as I actually started looking at them, immediately made sense to me as a content guy, as an aesthetics guy, as an art guy. Like I get this. And um, and I felt like I had, a, I felt like I had much more confidence in navigating that space and making good investments because I have all this experience as a producer and knowing what kind of content is going to move the needle, what actually stands the chance of succeeding and emerging to the next phase rather than just being a startup or a rug. That's not to say I didn't fall prey to rugs. I certainly did. <laughs> uh, you know, when you're moving fast, you're not always thinking clearly. Yeah. 
you make a couple mistakes here and uh-huh. there. Yeah. yeah, I think it's a <laughs> rite of passage. Um, but, uh, you know, I like, I didn't just like, I moved uh, every cent that I had in cryptocurrencies, I ended up allocating to NFTs, which uh, not financial advice, don't do what I did. <laughs> but it just made more sense to me. Um, I, I had set aside all this money and I was okay with losing all of it. And I thought, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it investing in stuff that is fun for me, that interests me. You know, all these numbers and like staking and yield and whatever, I don't care about any of that. I would much rather have cool art that I like and be involved in these communities that expose me to more cool people, more cool creators, and more more cool art. Um, and so I did that. Um, and I just... That's another thing about it is that I've been exposed to more art in the past, uh, what is it, 10 months, eight months, than in my whole life leading up to this. It's ridiculous. It's awesome. Like, it's changed the way that I look at the world. Um, and so, that, I mean, that alone makes it seem worthwhile, the investment. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And I had never really thought through the seen more art than I have in the rest of my life point. But especially from like a visual perspective, I probably have seen more digital art in the past year than I, I have in the entire rest of my life. And that that is really interesting to think about how that impacts your worldview and how it's kind of changed how I interacted with the world. So I think you're, you're spot on with that. I think the question that comes out of that is um, you get really involved in the space and you're consuming a ton of art for you in particular. Um, what does make something stand out? So Thingdoms, for example, what made that stand out of the the tide of incoming art and just content and NFTs to the point where you're like, that's something I'm interested in and want to be a part of? Mm-hmm. Um, the Thingdoms logo immediately grabbed me. It uh, communicated professionalism. I said that this is you know made by somebody who knows what they're doing. The color values are inviting and fun and friendly. Uh, the font also sort of brings you in. Uh, I don't know. I just like, and I didn't articulate that in my head when I saw it. It was just an immediate, my, Hey, my producer, Spidey sense is tingling. This is good. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once I finally got to see the thingdoms, I was like, these are great. These have a sense of humor to them. Um, these have a strong aesthetic sensibility. Again, I feel like the colors, the colors, the colors, I can't emphasize the colors enough. I feel like that is our superpower in this project. Um, the, just the color values are just like special and I don't even understand it that well. I don't have a great grasp on color theory. I just know what works for me and this project's colors really work. Um, Mm -hmm. and like when I field test that, when I show people, like when I show my little niece NFTs, she loves thingdoms. She loves them. When I show people, like when I wear my shirt, my do good thing shirt out, it pops and people comment on it. And I think a lot of that has to do with the color values. Um, but the, uh, I don't know, the thingdoms art style is just, it has it, it has it. Yeah, totally agree. The, the colors are a standout element for sure. Um, I think the the humor that you mentioned is also a huge part of it. Like they don't take themselves too seriously, but are, are also still um, like real. They're not like a meme or a joke. Right. Um, 
So I, I think they found like this incredible balance with I it. I think so too. There's an optimism um, to it too, I would say. Yeah, yeah, a real optimism that I think is is like very, um, in a way, countercultural. I totally to, to agree. And that's something that yeah. I value about it too because there's a lot of cynicism and nihilism in the NFT space right now. Um, and I'm, you know, like... I'll take a little cynicism. I'll take a little nihilism. There's a place for that. But I always go back home to optimistic art if I can find it. Um, because why not? You know, we're we're all going back to the void at some point. We might as well be happy while while we're here. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Um, and, and I think that ethos um, has like permeated the community to a certain extent. I'd love to get your take on you know, if you've been involved in, in community events, have you been able to go to like NFTLA or yeah. any of those types of things? I missed out. I watched some of your sidelines jealously. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was in the same boat, um, unfortunately. But what what are some of your highlights of the project so far? Things that you remember as like cool moments, things that stuck out to you? Shush. Oh, man. Um, I mean, I, I loved when we went to space. That was really cool. Uh, I love how excited the whole community got around that. I loved our Hamilton sing-along, which was just like, that was just this weird organic moment. And that was kind of the, if I'm not mistaken, I think that was sort of the beginning of when the community started playing with their avatars and with their nicknames in the server uh, to fit the theme of whatever we were doing at the time, which has evolved and been played with so many times now, but that's one of my favorite things about our server. Um, I loved when we all became tech. Shout out tech, by the way. Hi, tech. How's it going, tech? If you're listening, I miss you. Deep dishes, better than <laughs> New York style. Um, but uh, when we all became tech, that was a ton of fun. I love trolling that guy. He's just my, he's my buddy. I like tech. Sometimes. <laughs> um, yeah, man. Uh, oh, movie nights were great, man. Uh, I remember that. I know we don't, we haven't been doing them for a while because, you know, I th it just feels like we're out of season right now. Also, Mondays are rough because there's football now and, and bowling and things like that. But uh, well, <laughs> I yeah. do, yeah, bowling <laughs> very important to me, my bowling league. Um, but like, you know, uh, so many great jokes and memes came out of those first few movie nights. Uh, horse cops, still got to make that horse cops commercial. Um, I don't know, man. Just whenever we start going on the dance floor and we start riffing on each other and it becomes a little improvisational writer's room, I love it whenever that happens. The the improvisational like writer's room comment um, is really interesting. I hadn't really like considered the dynamic in that way specifically, but you're right. That is kind of the feel that it has um, a lot of the time. I totally agree. And I, I think those types of events... Um, create like a meme and like a culture that is hard to replicate um without having those types of events like it, it's very organic it doesn't feel forced um and like you were saying it's based on real friendships with people in the community which is is at least from what i've seen somewhat unique uh, across different projects but i'd love to zoom out a little bit and get your perspective on where you see this all going so we're five years from now ten years from now what do you hope has happened? What do you think will have happened? Um, where do you see this all going? Um, I mean, I'm kind of a knucklehead, so I don't have anything particularly 
original or intelligent to add to this conversation that smarter people that you've had on the show have already said. But, you know, I feel like in five to 10 years, NFTs are going to be the water that we swim in. You know, they're going to be ubiquitous. They're probably going to be integrated into our deeds and our IDs. And maybe, you know, maybe they'll streamline government bureaucracy in some way. And maybe that's a naive hope, but, uh, you know, stranger things have happened. Um, That sort of stuff is like, it feels inevitable and just to me, boring. I know that it's very like, it's going to change everything and it's probably important. I should probably care about it more, but I just don't really care. I care about the culture part of it. And that's where I see a lot of big, interesting things happening. Um, You know, uh, first of all, we've got a ton of artists who suddenly have access to capital that they didn't have before. And on the flip side of that, you have a ton of investors and people who weren't ever investors before, but are just regular Joes, who now have access to art and artists that they didn't before, um, which I think is kind of kind of a feedback loop. But let's go back to the artists. You've got all these people who now have capital and now have the opportunity to just create art for a living, if they so choose. And we're already seeing all these emerging artists right now who are doing this. And I think that they're impacting the space. And I think that the space impacts culture at large. And I think that's just going to keep going and going and going and getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, I mean, take what we've got going on today and multiply it worldwide. And I see a a huge impact on our our culture. There are going to be artists that emerge that become huge. They're going to change the way that we talk about things, the way that we talk about art. They're going to change the memes. They're going to, I mean, it's going to impact everything everything. Look at guys like, like, look at Robbie Broom, t-shirt, t-shirt Bob. I don't think, you know, like he's making art all the time. He got in the space like six months ago, right? Thank God for NFTs because now we have t-shirt Bob, (laughs) right? Yeah. Now, how many more people like t-shirt Bob are there going to be who are going to be putting great art out into the world? For all the people who you know, regard NFTs as some great evil. I just want to shake them by the ears and say, it's artists getting paid to make art. It's a good thing. More art is a good thing. I know that there are rugs. By the way, that's another thing that I value about Thingdoms is that there are so many con men and shysters and bastards in this space. And we don't have that here. (laughs) We have good people here who are actually going all in on their art. And that's something I respect so much. and that's what I think is great about NFTs is that it gives a lot of artists who want that opportunity uh, the chance to have that opportunity. Unfortunately, it also engenders a lot of scams and terrible behavior. But, you know, you get what t- I guess that's just what happens. That's the price you got to pay. Deal with the devil. Yeah, I, 100%. And I, I think it's also something that's going to get progressively ironed out. Over time, I, so. like, I, I think in the future, there will probably be less scams and less rugs and there will be more mechanisms of accountability, um, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. You know, some people would argue on either side. But um, I think the thing that can't really be argued with is the idea of, of more artists getting paid for more artists, generally speaking, a good thing. Um, and this system has for sure enabled that to happen. Um, as we kind of wrap up here, is there one final idea or thought that you would want to leave with the Thingdoms community or the NFT community at large? Something you'd want them to think about? 
Be patient. I see a lot of impatience and frustration and a sense of entitlement expressed by investors. Um, and I see a lot of people allowing their impatience to make to lead them to make bad decisions about where they throw their money. They want to catch a moon. And I would say, if you're planning to invest in this space and participate in this space, you should invest in projects that you want to hold for a very long time. In fact, you should try to, you should invest in projects that you would like, just don't want to sell. Like you should buy art that you love because you want to keep it forever. You know, that's how I feel about my things. Um, I, I kind of don't want to sell them because I love them. I like looking at them. It's silly to like just open up my page, my open C page and look at my things, but I do. Um, so I would say just be patient. And the other thing that I would stress is, um, and I tell this to people in real life, if you are a creative person, you should get an NFT and you should join an, NF an NFT community because NFT communities are collaborative spaces, they're encouraging spaces, and they are a place where you will have an audience who wants to look at the stuff that you make, who will give you encouragement, who will give you feedback, who will interact with your art. It might be a place where you can end up, you know, making things in collaboration with the greater project itself. There's a tremendous amount of opportunity in this space because it's so nascent and there's so much capital flowing in and there's so much creative energy coming in. And if you get a day job and you've always, you know, you paint on the side as a hobby or you make music or whatever, get an NFT and join a community and start putting that into that community and see what happens. I feel like good things are going to happen. I hope you enjoyed that interview. If you'd like to connect with Otra, you can find them on Twitter at Oat underscore Rick. And if you'd like to connect with me, you can also find me on Twitter at itsleekawm. I'd like to extend a huge thank you to Otrick for joining me on the show today and sharing their story. And, as per usual, a huge thank you to the entire Thingdoms community. If you know someone that should be featured on this show, send me a DM on Twitter or on Discord. I'd love to hear your perspective. Stay thingy, do good things, and I'll see you next week.